Matthew 13, verses 53 to 58. As we continue in this new year, I've laid out the preaching calendar. Lord willing, we will finish Matthew sometime in 26. It's going to be fine. I'm uh, just kidding. We're going we're to finish. Matthew 13, verses 50 through, 53 to 58. Those of you holding babies and stuffing cookies down their throat, I feel you. It's a 15 to 20 minute sermon. I'm going to huff and puff. All right, here we go. Uh, I have mentioned this before um, in other, another context, but most months of the year in our family, we don't have live uh, television. So we, we've got you know, a few streaming services, probably too many. Um, but we don't usually have live TV. Now, I wrote that part in the manuscript three nights ago, and then two nights ago I added live TV so I could watch some football this week. Um, so, which I like that you can just kind of turn that on and, and turn that off. But So um, not having live TV is not super problematic because it just doesn't really fit into our schedule to watch a lot of stuff. Um, but I do like to kind of keep up with, with football in particular and sometimes baseball. And so... When I don't have live TV, but I'm interested in what's going on in the, in the game, I will open the ESPN app on my phone and click on the GameCast. Has anybody else done this? On the, okay, yes, right. So you click on the GameCast button, and you can watch in delayed real time what is happening uh, in a football game. So um, you, it, as third and ten becomes fourth and ten or, or comes first and ten, there is um, the, the, a little ball will move or not move up and down the field, and you'll see the change, and the time will change. But you're, you're like on a 20-second delay, I think. Sometimes it doesn't refresh, which is super frustrating. But you can kind of you know, keep up with a game. And so it kind of it satisfies my desire um, to be connected to a live event without actually having to pay for access to watch um, the live event. So that's part of why I like it. But the other reason I like it, is because as the game is progressing, the app will make a projection about the likely result of the game. So you could be late in the first quarter, and the score could be so-and-so. So it has all this data that it's pulling in based on team records and injury reports and time remaining and field advantage and, and weather and the current score and the time remaining and the stats of key players and all this stuff. It will tell you, for example, that with eight minutes left in the, in the fourth quarter and the Cowboys are up by 14, there's an 87% chance likelihood that Mike McCarthy will keep his job this year. Something like that, right? So something like that. By the way... Uh, Joe and Nita, uh, where'd you go? Where'd you go? Oh, there you are in the back. You're a little farther back because we have all these people here this morning. Um, do you know what the, the GameCast projection was as the field goal was getting ready to be kicked last night for the uh, OSU-Georgia game? Westie, 53% chance Georgia still won. So, and they did. Sorry about that. Anita, yes, Ohio State fan married to a Michigan fan, which is super amazing testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ right there in the back, right? So I, I, I do like that, even though it's kind of silly, but it's giving me, you know what it's giving me? It's giving me a trajectory. It's giving me a sense that things are going to go a certain way. And you know what? I like that. I like that sense of semi-certainty that it, that, it, that it gives me. Okay, if you've been with us going through the Gospel of Matthew, or even if you've not, if you've read Matthew from chapter 1 to chapter 13 before in your life, you might be tempted 
to think that Jesus and his disciples are on a very positive trajectory toward his enthronement as a king, as the Messiah. There's no questioning Jesus' identity in Matthew 1 through 4. His nature, his teachings in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and they've been teaching about the nature of the kingdom of God and, uh, and the Sermon on the Mount have, have resonated with people. They've astonished people. His ministry from two people, uh, Jew and Gentile alike, in Matthew 8 and 9, have everybody raving and following him. The fact that then Jesus multiplies his ministry out through his disciples in Matthew chapter 10 kind of gives you this sense of inevitability, of, of growth about his Messiahship. And even when you get to John the Baptist's doubt in Matthew chapter 11 and the opposition of the religious leaders in Matthew chapter 12, and then you've got some lack of clarity about the nature of the kingdom of God that Jesus deals with in Matthew 13 through the parables. Even though you have all that, you get, Jesus answers that with such clear truth and more miracles that there's, you, never, you never get the sense that Jesus isn't going to win. He's on, a, he's on a positive trajectory. Yeah, it's like third and five there in Matthew 12, but... Jesus gets a first down, and it's just, it's strong all the way. So you, you would not be an unusual gospel reader if, to this point, you're reading Jesus' life and thinking, he's on the up. This is going to happen. This is going to happen until today, okay? So Matthew 13, 53, 58, you have, this, you have this passage where Jesus' trajectory seemingly gets checked, and his percentage comes down, okay? He doesn't face doubt from the greatest human prophet or opposition from the greatest religious minds. Today, he gets flat-out rejected by his hometown and his home people, okay? So look with me. We're going to talk about rejection, trajectory and rejection, and how these things work together. Look at verse 53. Jesus finished these parables that we've looked at over the last several weeks. And he left there, and he went to his hometown, and he began to teach them in their synagogue. So here we are. We're back in Nazareth, and we're at the synagogue, which, given the size of, of uh, Nazareth, maybe 1,500 people or so, this building, this area is super important to the, the social life and the fabric of the community, not just for the reasons of teaching what Jesus is doing here, but for all kinds of reasons. And so Jesus has come back into the center of the town, and he's where he's from, it's where he's from. And look at that again. It's where he's from. And he's teaching. And look at their reaction and their assumptions in verse 54 to 57. He was teaching in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, and his sisters? Aren't they all with us? So where does he get all of these things? In 57, first, a, part, first part of 57, and they were offended by him. It's how interesting that the villagers of Nazareth don't question the content of Jesus' teaching, whatever he's saying in this moment. Nor do they question the legitimacy of his powers. What they question is how in the world Jesus of Nazareth could be the one to know all this stuff and do all this stuff. 
Jesus comes from a village family, and that's proved by the fact that there's a father and a mother, now just a, a mother, and there, there, there are four brothers and there, there are sisters, at least three is what the language implies. And all are well known to the people that are raising these questions and are probably still living there. And in view of all these family connections that Jesus has, Jesus' rightful place in Nazareth was supposed to be doing Nazareth things. Jesus is from Nazareth. He should be doing Nazareth things. And people from Nazareth don't know all this stuff. They don't have all this power. Jesus, Jesus, from their perspective, had no business teaching people and doing miracles. Jesus defied the categories of the people of Israel where their scandalizo took and there's the word in verse 57, they took offense. The Greek word there is skandalizo. It's where we get our word scandal, right? They stumbled over him. Why? Not because of what he said. Not because of what he was doing. But because of where he was from and the kind of person that he was as a result. The very first lines of the Broadway production Hamilton hit at this very simply and very powerfully. How does an orphan son of a less than stellar mother and a Scotsman dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean by providence, impoverished in squalor, how does that guy grow up to be a hero and a scholar? That's the mindset of the Nazareths. And you hear this sort of thing today, right? You say, oh, Jesus... Somebody will say, he's a great teacher. No denying his influence, Jew, have to do with me. Right? It's a rejection of Jesus based solely on the fact of his, of his background. It's got nothing to do with his content or the truths about him. So we have here rejection. Now look at Jesus' response in verse 57. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his household. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his household. So Jesus quotes this proverbial saying and he applies it to himself. Now this, in and of itself, is not insignificant because prophets had direct touch with God, and they passed on what God said. And there had not been a prophet, other than perhaps John the Baptist, from the perspective of those people in Nazareth, there had not been a prophet for 400 years. And here, in response to rejection, based on his, I am a prophet. And it's not just that he is wise. It's not just that he can work miracles. It's that he is a prophet. He says, I have direct touch with the Father, and I can only say what he has told me to say. I have a one-on-one -on -one relationship with God, and I have the calling and the power to say what God has to say. Oh. And if you've read the prophets in the Old Testament, then you know that when God speaks, it's not super obvious to a lot of people, much less is it accepted or obeyed. A lot of the prophets get rejected. And in Jesus' case, this rejection comes from those who know him best, his hometown, including his siblings and even his mother, his household. 
stay tuned through the gospel. Okay. But then look at the result in verse 58. He did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. So you see, to, to reject Jesus is not to believe in Jesus. And while the lack of belief has consequences for Nazareth, do you see what Jesus does? It says, he did not do many. He's been on a tear, right? He's been like Oprah giving away cars. You get a miracle. You get a miracle. He's been giving them away left and right. And now, because of unbelief, he doesn't do many. See, even in the face of rejection, Jesus is still gracious. He's still continuing to bring to bear the kingdom realities, even to those who think he's lost his mind. Okay? So what? I want to give you three things to take home today. One about trajectory, one about rejection, and then one about how those two work together. Okay? So first, trajectory. So I said at the very beginning that the casual reader of Matthew's gospel could not be faulted for thinking that Jesus is on a really positive trajectory and he had a 90% chance or so, right, of establishing a very popular earthly kingship. That's what it looks like, except it, it wasn't, right? So I want to ask you, it's day one of 2023. We were in the car yesterday coming home. We did it on the car on the way over here because we had two more children in the car. We asked this question, what were your highlights from 2022? But then another good conversation would be, what are your hopes for 2023? If you had to think about what's on the calendar, if you had to think about what's on your heart, if you had to think about the, the opportunities that are in front of you, what do you think the trajectory is for 2023? Have you made your budget yet? Nobody's nodding their head. That's not good. That's not good. Have you made your travel plans? Have you got a potential new job on the horizon? Think you got a pretty good idea of where everything is going? See, the, the problem with trajectory is that it's a lot of interesting information, and yet none of it actually means anything to us finite human beings. We live personally testifying. <laughs> But the more that we gorge ourselves on data and information, the more prideful we become in our conjecture about our trajectory. Okay. And I think we'd be really wise to keep before us these words from Jesus' half-brother James, which are really ironic words because in Matthew 13, he's on a completely different trajectory than he is by the time he's writing this letter. And he says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow that we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. You don't know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you are like vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Matthew's structured his gospel in such a way that forces us to submit our trajectory to the providence and the sovereignty of God. Whatever we think we know, we know so little. Even our will, even our responsibilities, even our planning is submitted to the sovereignty and the providence of God. So, you're making a new year plan? I think that's great. I have made plans as well. And what I'm telling you is, we're not in charge of our lives. God sets our trajectory. 
Rejection. Why do people reject Jesus? In this text, it's because of where he's from, right? You can take the man out of Nazareth, but you can't take the Nazareth out of the man. That's the reason these people rejected Jesus. And there's still some of that today. But we know that the reasons for rejection of Jesus and the good news are far more nuanced and varied and complicated than just that. So, from this text, I'm, 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 I'm struggling to, um, to push myself to be wise or at least be familiar with the reasons the world rejects Jesus. Not just to be able to contend for the faith when the opportunity comes up in a really compelling and, and, and winsome way, but also so that when the rejection happens, I'm not caught off guard. I'm not unnecessarily discouraged, right? It's sad, but it's not devastating. It was the way of Jesus, so it's going to be the way of us. And we'd be wise to understand that, that rejection is a part of following the Lord, watching people reject him. Which leads me to the last thing that I want to leave you before we, before we go and burn the note. Okay? Re- the rejection that you experience as you share the gospel is a part of the trajectory. So I started off by saying that Jesus' rejection at Nazareth was a check in his trajectory, but that's not really true, <laughs> right? The rejection that Matthew documents for us here in Matthew 13 wasn't like out of the blue. It was a requirement. Jesus' rejection by his hometown and by his household was a requirement for Jesus to maintain the trajectory that he'd always had, but that just wasn't expected by everybody else around him. Everybody thought the trajectory was earthly king. And Matthew's writing a gospel that is highlighting that that's what everybody's thinking. But this moment of rejection happens, and it's the fur, it's the hinge, it's the center of Matthew. We're going to go, so we're going to see this the rest of the way through. Matthew's writing this because that's what people see on the outside, but Jesus' actual trajectory wasn't to be enthroned on an earthly kingship, but to be lifted up on a cross and take over the king and be king of the universe. And to get there, he had to be rejected and despised by men. So, so Jesus' rejection is a crucial part of his real trajectory. He couldn't reign as a victor over sin and death without being despised and rejected by the very sinners that he came to save. And because rejection is a part of Jesus' trajectory, it's a necessary part of ours. And so I want to tell you as a Christian, when you are dejected and rejected and discouraged and frustrated, press on. That's the very thing. The, the rejection and the struggles and the suffering, those, those things that are meant to make you question if you've made the right call in following Jesus are actually the very assurance that you need to keep on following Jesus. So, press on. Let's pray together. That, that math. Okay. Father, we, I thank you for the way that, that Matthew has structured his gospel to give us this sense of of how we think things are going to go one way but they really always go another and that ultimately we're not in charge and whatever thing we think we know or feel about how things are going to go we really just don't know and so we we humbly sit at your feet this new year and we look ahead
just step at a time trusting you with our lives. You know we don't. We can trust you. And so we, we, just, we just want to say, if the Lord wills, X, Y, and Z. If the Lord wills, X, Y, and Z. May that be the posture of our heart. And inasmuch as we are disappointed <laughs> that people reject the truth that is in us in the gospel, would you just speak into us in those moments to know, hey, it's going to happen. At the same time, Father, would you equip us and empower us to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us and to be able to contend for the faith and address the reasons why people reject Jesus because we, none of the reasons, as far we believe, none of the reasons are legitimate. You are the way and the truth and the life, and we ask that we would be uh, people who contend and share our faith even in the face of rejection and that we trust you with it. And we know, Lord, that all the suffering and the struggles and the discouragement that come with living the Christian life, those things are part and parcel of what it means to walk. You use all of those things. They all work together for the good. Those things can actually give us faith and hope and encouragement. So, Father, we ask that you would do that in our uh, lives as we follow you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.